welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me, honey child of the fantastic The 1865, uh, who put out an one of my favorite records of the last few years, Don't Tread on We. Also, one of the founders of the Sista Girl Riots, and we'll get into all that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, head over to the email address, at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and, and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you so much for all the hard work you do for this podcast, Tristan. I really appreciate it. And he will get the message to me. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me at left for damien on Twitter and Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, there is an Instagram page for Turned Out of Punk run by my aforementioned brother, Tristan. He also runs a Facebook page for this thing. And you can head over there and send us messages through those things as well. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that we do this podcast and you enjoy it. That really does help us out. You can also support us by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice, or you can subscribe to it um, on iTunes and rate it on iTunes. That's very much appreciated for those people that do that. Thank you very much. Uh, speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien... Just stop, you know, paying for this thing out of your pocket. We'll help you cover the costs, and they have, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much to them for for continuing to do that. Also, speaking of thank yous, huge, huge, huge thank you to all the people over there at Patreon.com that uh, – over there at Turn Out a Punk – or Patreon.com slash Turn Out a Punk that support this podcast and uh, very much appreciate that. Thank you very much for allowing me to do this thing and to keep putting out all these episodes. I, I can't thank you enough for that. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, an incredibly awesome guest, Honey Child of the band The 1865. Now, if you have not heard The 1865 album yet, stop this now and go listen to it. It is a fantastic record, a record that when it came out, um, you know, the first time I heard it, you know, got caught up in the lyric sheet and realized what all these songs were about and as a whole... I don't know, it's just one of those things that, you know, transcends just being, you know, a collection of good songs and becomes a much larger statement unto itself. So a better way to celebrate this awesome record than by having not one, but two members of the 1865 on the podcast this week. Uh, later on this week, I'll be joined by Sasha Jenkins, who, in addition to being in the 1865, is the founder of Ego Trip, which is hugely formative for myself. And I don't know if I'd be doing this podcast without without that influence. But before that, having Honeychild on the show. Now, Honeychild is an artist who has had a massive amount of influence, not just through her music, which is incredible and has done a whole wide variety of projects and has been on Roar and also, you'll hear all about that in a second, but also through her involvement in the Sister Girl Riots, which was a collective of artists that got together and sort of almost as a reaction to the over-representation of white people within the Riot Girl movement formed a black-focused musician organization in New York that put on parties and is horribly, horribly underdocumented, unfortunately, when it comes to recorded works. But there are a lot of articles now that you can go and read um, online about this this group that, yeah, once again, was pivotal in 
inspiring a lot of young people, especially young black women, to get involved in in music and rock and roll and stuff. Anyway, Honeychild talks about it in a second. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I want everyone, please, to sit back, relax, and enjoy Honeychild on Turned Out a Punk. Honeychild, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a, a massive fan of the 1865 LP, and uh, it's it's a huge thrill to get you on the show. But I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Honeychild. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um. <laughs> yes, uh, I was in third grade, and I was reading the newspaper, and. I grew up in Kentucky, just to give you some background. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading the paper. There's a full-page ad um, telling people to not let their kids go see the Sex Pistols. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, don't let your children see the Sex Pistols. And just a list of uh, – a barrage of things that they were evil for doing and being. And – um I remember turning to my parents and being like, what are the sex pistols? And they're like, we don't know. And just kind of downplayed it. And then uh, later I got into Blondie and the Clash and I kind of started to learn a little bit more about um, some of the UK bands. But that was like my first exposure to punk. Like, oh, this band is so bad and so wild and so crazy that someone took out an ad against them. (laughs) Like they're rebels. (laughs) That's the best marketing campaign a band could ask for. Exactly. I was like, I want to see them. Are they going to be on TV? How do I find out more? So that was my exposure. Do you know who took out the ad by any chance? Oh, I'm sure all the churches pulled their money together (laughs) and said, we got to shut this down. Um, Yeah. We got to make this seem as cool as possible to all these kids. Exactly. I keep meaning to like go to the archival library the next time I visit my family and like look it up because I remember it so vividly just to be like, I'd love to get a picture of that. But um, that was my introduction to what it means to be punk, I guess. Oh, that'd be a great t-shirt. But uh, going on from that, like, yeah, where, you mentioned getting into kind of Blondie after that. Where did you kind of get into that stuff from and kind of what music were you into prior to that? Um, I was into a lot of kind of heavy classic and sixties rock mm-hmm. as a kid. Um, and surf rock. I had a lot of surf records I kind of inherited between my older cousins and my neighbors who used to babysit me. So and I was super into the Beatles. They were probably one of my favorite bands. Um so uh then Blondie became kind of big in a weird way because of disco. But because I was a total nerd and I was super into the library and the bookmobile and my bookmobile brought vinyl, I started to look at everything that Blondie ever recorded. Like I went backwards. Like whenever I would like a band, I'm like, well, what else did they do? And I just like start studying them. So that I realized that their older music was more odd. It wasn't as poppy and dancey. And I was really drawn to it. So that kind of kicked off my punk inquisitiveness. Um, and then I completely changed how I dressed. It's like the height of disco. I started pegging all my pants and like cutting things and stealing clothes from my dad and like the whole nine yards. So I guess going back prior to that, where were you kind of discovering music from? Was it mainly the radio, I guess? Uh, pretty much the radio, uh, my cousins, my older cousins records, um, 
Also, my dad used to manage show bands, which I don't know if you're familiar with, like think Earth, Wind and Fire, but more local. That's awesome. yeah. <laughs> so like bands like Earth, Wind and Fire, who had like horn sections and at least 10 people in the band and matching costumes. Um, my older cousin, Doug Miller, was in a show band called Third World Edition. My dad managed them and then he managed some other bands. So I was exposed to like the mothership, funk, disco uh, rock infused thing that was a show band at a really young age. So it wasn't unusual to be flamboyant and daring in dress. And, um, and they would also, the thing about show bands that I also thought was cool was they would take any popular song and just make it a show band song. So it could be a Fleetwood Mac song. It could be, I didn't, maybe not Black Sabbath, but like Led Zeppelin or <laughs> anything and just like turn it into something else. So very innovative. And um, that's kind of how I was pretty much exposed to music, in addition to television, of course, and radio. So I guess the, that would have been your first shows, going to see these show bands? Yeah, because, you know, they would play at, like, barbecues and cookouts and, and, and in nightclubs that sometimes I could kind of peek into, even though I wasn't really old enough to be in there. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, that was pretty much my first live, ex live band experience. Did they ever do a Blondie song? remember them doing Blondie. Um, Glass would sound awesome. That would be sick. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember them doing Blondie. They definitely did like Pointer Sisters, um, bands that were a little bit more like, I guess, soul oriented. Um, but then, you know, Prince came along. So he's giving you like the best of both worlds because he's punk and he used to be rude and he's also extremely funk. So that was like the bridge for me of like, oh, wait a minute. It's still that, but he's doing something else. So... Yeah, it's amazing how many people come on the show, and that was like their first concert was seeing Prince. Like Prince was like such an awakening artist for a lot of people. It feels like. Yeah, he was just so radical, and just I could really relate. Um, you know, and I think every preteen girl I knew had that poster on the back of their door that the parents never saw <laughs> from the controversy album. They're like, I'm in my room with headphones listening to records. They have no idea what's taped to the back of the door. Um, but yeah, visually, uh, he definitely was a groundbreaker. Um, I think later on, some somewhere between like grade school and middle school, when I got my own radio, which is huge, um, I started staying up really late listening to Rock Over London. And we got it once a week. You'd get like the UK chart, like top 10 or top five. So that was like another thing for me. And then I was such a nerd i'm sure i was making notes about the bands i heard and then going to the library and looking for the records that i couldn't find in my local record store so what sorry what was rock over london like just like a weekly kind of uk radio show or it was, was a uk radio show um i cannot remember the host's name i think it was like gene drearden or drendon mm -hmm. uh it was like a, a top 10 hits but they were all kind of post-punk and new wave and and not you know like maybe if you lived in a bigger city like college radio would play them but they definitely were not mainstream and definitely weren't hits in america yet later like closer to the 90s a lot of the things they played were more like mainstream but then not so much like the most mainstream thing i remember hearing on that show was probably the clash so yeah, yeah. it's kind of funny how like 
you know, when you look at the UK charts from back then, like how much weird stuff was just bubbling over to the surface, like Crass was on the charts and like Sham 69 and all these. Exactly. It's, it's such a different world. Yeah, it's totally different. Um, and then if you look at magazines from back then too, and like for me, cause I got into a lot of those bands so much later thinking like, oh wow, so-and-so was playing. Like uh, one of my favorite bands is APB. I don't know if you know them. They're Scottish. Oh, for yeah. some yeah. strange, they're huge in New York for some really bizarre reason, <laughs> uh, because we had this station called WLIR, and they used to play APB a lot to the point that APB would tour here. So then APB started touring with James Brown. Like, what an unusual combination. Yeah. But it made sense because they were like a dance funk, no wave band. So I don't remember that they played with James Brown then, but like... <laughs> In 2005, I found a vintage poster of it, and I kind of lost my mind. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But then I would have been baffled by it. That would have been a spectacular show to get to see, too. Like, James Brown in that kind of venue, I would imagine. Exactly. Would be exactly. Where did you kind of go from, you know, you mentioned getting into this stuff from uh, th this radio show and grabbing these uh, records from the library. Were there any concerts kind of coming up that you were going to or any shows around that time? Mm, unfortunately, because I grew up in the Bible Belt, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my parents were just super strict. So I wasn't allowed to go to shows until I was like 16 or 17. By then, um, there were only really like bigger people would come to Louisville, like Culture Club came there or like... Prince did come, um, but at that point in my life, I wasn't really into live shows as much, or maybe I hadn't really gotten into it is a better way to put it. I was more into like dancing and DJs, so I didn't really start hitting live shows until I left for college and came to New York, and then I would go to like all these different random venues that... Uh, during the week, it would be free to get in, but you would see so many bands play, and then later there would be DJs. So what was the first show you went to in New York, do you remember? Um, I saw Green on Red at the Peppermint Lounge, and then I saw RuPaul's Punk Band. Oh my gosh, that's so yeah, awesome! That was like my first, like, hey, I'm in New York, and I'm going to go to that nightclub that was in that movie... Um, the Smithereens, which yeah. I don't know. If, okay, so I was obsessed with the Smithereens. It's An amazing probably, band. Oh my gosh, they've never come up on the show though. So that's totally, awesome. totally. Well, you know the film by Susan, um, the woman who also did Desperately Seeking Susan. This was her first movie, and it's basically the same plot. So uh, the nightclub in the Smithereens is the Peppermint Lounge. That's where Richard Held band plays, and so I was like, I gotta go to this club because it's so cool. So I get there, and I'm just like, wow, this is like so weird and kind of like depressing yet edgy and and then i saw rupaul with like a white mohawk and like i basically was like okay i came to the right city this is where i'm supposed to live that is um, so awesome that was like definitely i'm trying to think what shows at that point because i was really into clubbing because uh when i moved here you could get into venues at 18 so i lost my mind i was like i can go everywhere and I didn't even drink. I just wanted to go and like hear music. Um, I remember seeing like David Johansson play um, and Chris Isaac, super, super young, also on the same bill with like, t you know, Tish and Snooki from Manic Panic. Yeah. They used to sing back up with Blondie. So they had some crazy all-star band with all these people. 
and it was like a Thanksgiving Eve party. So it, was, it wasn't a normal night, but I was like, wow, this is like the crazy cream of the crop of New York East Village people that are kind of left over from the scene and kind of left over from the no wave scene all on the same stage. Um, that was probably one of the first like kind of bigger shows I went to. Um, after that, I don't know, I, I started to go to like more, it's sound, I mean, it's interesting now or maybe not so much, but like I saw Love and Rockets. I saw the Lemonheads. I saw the Bolshoi at this kind of Gothic place called the cat club, which I went to a lot. Um, and then from there, I like, I think I started working at a venue shortly after that. So then I just went to shows all the time. Like I saw Sonic Youth for the Daydream Nation tour and it was just like nothing but noise. And I loved it. And that probably inspired me to think about maybe playing music myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I didn't jump right into going to New York, to be honest. I was a little intimidated by the live venue scene here because I didn't understand politics that you can just go wherever it seemed very extreme and i was really afraid to go to cbgb's i was no i don't think i can go there it seems like really rough you know all my friends who go there are skinheads and all i hear is like they get in fights every week and that's not i'm not about that life so (laughs) i think i'll just like keep going to see djs and like stay mellow but um i think once i started to see music I realized like yeah that's what I want to be doing um as far as going to shows goes going back to that very first RuPaul show because RuPaul's punk band is one of my like obsessions like that was it RuPaul and the U-Hauls or was it I think Sex Maniac Uh, I think was the other band after that maybe you know I don't remember the name of the band but I remember that uh RuPaul had a song called Star Booty okay and it left such an impression on me um, way before RuPaul was famous and years and years and years later, I mentioned it to my good friend. I was like, I remember, I remember I saw Star Booty. He's like, yeah, that was RuPaul's other band. And I'm like, oh, right. And then I started like visually remembering like how he looked. He was super young. I was like, all I remember is I'd never seen another black person in person with a mohawk before until that night. <laughs> so I was just like, whoa, okay, here I am. But um, yeah, I found that record on vinyl when I went to Africa Bimbada's archives because he opened them up and someone had placed them in a gallery where you could literally see every piece of vinyl he owned. And I was just like, oh, let me just flip through and see what's here. And that was the first thing I found. That is so so awesome. I remember when that exhibit happened too and just kind of like lusting after the idea of getting to go through those records, but it's so cool that that record would be in there. I know he had really diverse tastes. It was kind of nuts. Yeah. And so. I guess like, I'm oh, sorry, I do not mean to cut you off. Oh no, it's fine. I, I, I guess like at that time too, like just the stuff that was coming out in New York, it's just, it's so amazing to think about what like a, a cultural explosion, several cultural explosions were kind of going off in the late seventies and early eighties in terms of music and, mm-hmm. and, and art and stuff like that, which, you know, trickles on right throughout the eighties into the nineties. Definitely. Um, I guess going back to, uh, you know, mentioning those shows that you were going to and those parties you were going to, was it like a bit of a crossover scene? Like were punk rockers going to the DJ nights and stuff like that? Or was it, you know, mentioning um, it's like much less aggressive and kind of a different world. It was definitely, uh, I can't say it was a crossover scene, but I could say the crowd was very mixed. Um, 
because one of the venues I used to go to was called Madame Rosa's. It was a really small bar. It was only two rooms. But um, I loved going there because you could literally go and just draw on the walls and they didn't care. So every week you could go and put up a tag and then they'd paint over it and then you could come back and do it again. Like they encouraged it. Um, and I just remember looking around the room one night and like Basquiat used to DJ there a lot. So he was DJing. It was me and my like three kind of kooky art punk friends. There were some people voguing because voguing was just whatever. Then it was part of New York dance culture. It wasn't like popular outside of that scene. And then there were these like really amazing guys that kind of dressed like Eric B and Raheem, but you know, that's just how they rolled every day. And you know, they just came from the Bronx and they were just in the corner doing their dance. Like everybody was there in the same room, feeling the same music, but completely self-contained. And I just feel like this is what I love about New York. You can just go from place to place. And if you're there, people know you're supposed to be there. They're not, it was like the opposite of the whole like studio 54 thing. No one was, there was no rope and no one was keeping you out and you didn't have to fit or conform to be a certain way. And, um, and I loved it. I really loved that. Um, and you might see like a rude boy or a skinhead or like somebody in like a shark skin suit. You might see like a total mod. It was just like really a mix of people and it was great. Yeah. It also just feels like there's like a lot more like it, that doesn't necessarily happen in other cities. You know, there's a lot more of like the high art world hitting sort of like the street and the reality of the world, you know, that you don't really see in places, you know, like even Los Angeles, you don't really see that kind of crossover happening. No, no, you don't. Um, and I lived in the Bay area for a while in between, like from like 88 to 93. And when I first got there, that was probably the most shocking thing to me is how it wasn't as mixed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really kind of set me back like, Oh, everyone gets along and there's this like peace thing, but it's not so mixed up. It's like you go to a place and it's, it's that, and it's nothing else. And no one else is kind of filtering in or out. So it was a little strange. Um, we're definitely spoiled here for that. And what kind of stuff would Basquiat DJ at that time? Um, he was playing like, uh, I want to say he was playing, probably dance hall mm -hmm. and some freestyle and maybe just like some some music similar to like gray like the kind of stuff he made like yeah. kind of the stuff he would do with ramel z like death comic crew that kind of stuff um and just dance music because he loved dancing it's so wild that like the greatest artist of like the last you know century or longer even is like you know, DJing records, you know? Like yeah, it, just... it was, it was really cool. Um, but it was also like, I don't know. Uh, that was a point before like celebrity culture. Like now someone like that could never DJ in a little bar because people wouldn't leave them alone, Yeah, you know? So then like when you saw people who were famous, you left them alone and that's why they lived here because they knew they could just be anonymous. Like that line of respect doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and it made it very special. Cause I remember one night I went and Simon Gallup was just hanging out at the bar, having a drink. And I was like, isn't that the bass player of the cure right now? Just sitting like 10 feet from me. And I was like, that's so awesome. He's just here. Like it's his local bar. So that's like, that's a part of New York I really miss in a way because 
it's not like I moved here to see celebrities, but just that people could be normal. Like not every day that you step outside is like fanfare, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's just, uh, like you're saying, it's, it's something that just doesn't exist now. Like can't exist now Mm-mm. because everyone has to document every interaction. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, going back to that Sonic Youth show on the Dare Dream Nation tour, you mentioned that's what inspired you to play music. You hadn't played music prior to that or sang before? Not since grade school. No. Um, I moved to New York just to study art and fashion. So I had nothing. I wasn't creating music. I always kind of wrote poetry, but um, I was listening to Sonic Youth a lot um, on all these different kind of indie and college shows. And I remember someone had interviewed them where they had talked about building their own instruments and some of the members were self-taught and that I found very interesting and maybe even Dada in a way like, Oh, they don't care that it doesn't sound perfect because they have a statement to make. So I have bought the record the day it came out. And then when I went to the show, I didn't really know what to expect because I don't know if you've seen them, but I've seen them probably at least 20 times because <laughs> I'm a little obsessed. Every time you see them, it's a little different. Yeah, absolutely. And you never know when a song is going to happen because they're building the sound live in front of you, which I also really love because it's an experience. It's not just a concert. But if that's the first time you see them, you don't know that's what's happening. So it just felt like I was in an airplane hangar the entire time. I remember like backing up because I probably didn't wear earplugs at that point and the sound was getting louder and louder. And suddenly the wall was against my back and suddenly I was sliding down to the floor and I sat on the floor for the entire concert, just surrounded in the noise they created. And it really left an impression on me like, oh, this isn't just a band. It's not just songs. It's something else. Mm-hmm. And it, it's because um, I was listening to the record, you know, your record the other day or the 1865 LP, I should say. And it's, it's kind of got that same effect when you listen to it on headphones. Like it's almost like the, the volume or the noise or the sonic arrangement becomes like a separate instrument unto itself where it kind of becomes, you know, immersive. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, like, you know, and I, 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 you know, I imagine Sonic Youth would be an influence on a lot of people, but like to hear that it's like a direct influence, I can definitely hear that in that kind of like immersion kind of quality to it. Definitely. Um, on the song Peggy, I straight thought about Kim Gordon the entire time I was writing my guitar parts. When Sasha gave me his riff, I was like, oh, this is going to be mad dissonant. He's not even going to know what I'm doing. Because also I switched from regular to baritone guitar, like halfway through writing the songs. So then I'm like, okay, I got to play something that's not the straight chords and that song because of the content also, because it's, it's such a, uh, seething, (laughs) I don't even want to say theme, but the story is so seething because, you know, this woman's sacrificing her kids so they can be free spiritually. Like, I'm like, I gotta somehow make that, that feeling a note. And, I think of Sonic Youth every time I hit the first chord of that song. It just, that's the feeling I have in my heart. I don't know if they would understand that, but um, <laughs> definite influence. Yeah, no, that, and it's the, the album is, is, you know, like you're saying, it's a very heavy record. Like the topics you're dealing with lyrically, heavier than anything Sonic Youth really deals with on any of their songs, that's for sure. And it's, it's something where, you know, because it does have, and also with sort of, not to call them skits, but like sort of the interstitial segments in between the songs too, it does kind of create like a, like a, a concept, I don't want to say a concept record, but like, you know, like something like that. Was that, 
the intention going into writing the el- the album or even um, starting the band? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when Sasha kind of pitched the idea to me, um, you know, we talked about the history of what was promised to us as a people and what we have right now and what didn't happen. Um, and then we, we definitely talked about before we even really recorded, um, that it wouldn't just be an album and it wouldn't just be songs that it has potential. The tree has many branches. So to be able to, uh, well, when I started writing lyrics, to be honest, I actually kind of took a pause and hit some history books because I wanted the characters to be authentic. And the story of Peggy Gardner specifically really stood out to me. Um, also because what happened to her happened between Ohio and Kentucky. And that's where I grew up. So I felt like this story, um, every, every story that we tell on the record could be a modern story. If you take out, the historical references and I don't know, maybe that's what makes people gravitate to it, but it's also, uh, it was definitely intentional. Absolutely. Um, I guess now jumping way back to the past, I'm, we'll, we'll get back to the band, I'm sure before, the sure, end sure. Of this, but going back to, um, when you started to play music, what was your next kind of step after that Sonic Youth show, as far as like, you know, picking up an instrument? Um, well, I started singing, um, when I got to the Bay area, I met two other women who were singers and one of them had a studio in our house and we started, we started a kind of punk rock acapella group (laughs) in, in typical Bay area fashion. Our first concerts were all at protests. (laughs) So uh, I remember we did like a Gulf war protest and then we did some gay rights protests and then we did the Castro street fair and all, we were the, the group, we were the group that were called upon if you needed like some protest singers with edge. So, um, that was the beginning of me thinking like, Oh wait, I really love singing and maybe I want to like learn how to do this properly. And I actually started to take voice lessons after that. And then one of the women in that group gave me my first guitar. She just like came home one day and said, Hey, I got this guitar. I don't know. It kind of looks like you, I think you can play it. And I started teaching myself (laughs) and I just played every night until I fell asleep and recorded it and then studied it and played more. And like that kind of sparked it off for me as far as thinking like, Oh, maybe I'm supposed to play music instead of paint or in addition to. Well, you mentioned getting to the Bay area. What was like, what was the scene like when you got there? You mentioned how, you know, obviously, um, sort of different the scenes were, but like, was there, um, you know, bands happening that you were kind of going to see that you enjoyed at that time? Yeah, I really, um, fell into the funk thrash scene. Um, Fishbone, Chili Peppers were like a big influence on all the bands I knew there. So those bands I became friends with, I would go to their shows. Um, the biggest one being Primus, of course, but there were a lot of bands underneath that scene that sprouted up at the same time. Um, and then one of the women I was in the acapella group with, we became the backup singers for two of those bands. So we were always at like skate competitions and street fairs and places like that. Um, singing with those different bands. And then in that same crew, like we would see Mr. Bungle, we would see, um, 
this other band that later sprouted off to become, um, what is it, Third Eye Blind. There's another band that later became Cake, because there there's also a really big mod scene there. Mm-hmm. And my roommate, who was also one of the singers in the acapella group, was she was in like the scooter rally mod crew as well. So I would go to mod parties with her and see those bands. Um, then what were were the names of the bands that you sang backup for? Um, one band was called the smoking section. Okay. Another band. Um, (laughs) we were a disco revival band in the middle of grunge. So imagine (laughs) who our fan base was. (laughs) Nobody was feeling disco then that was coming way later, but we were super into rare grooves. We're like, Oh, let's make a disco band. So that band was called the Partridge heads. And then, um, one of the guys from that band, my friend Tony Fader, he later became kind of a DJ producer. And I still like work with him a little bit. But um, in the same crew, I was friends with another band called The Mod Squad. And they were on the same label with Digital Underground. So there was like a weird crossover between psychedelic hip hop and thrash funk. And we were kind of in the middle of all that. Um, then my roommate's sister was in the dance hall Crashers. So I would go see them. Um, what a small kind of, world like that's so Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think who else was in the crew. Like Gilman Street was happening, but I was a little older and I wasn't a visual punk like they were, so I kind of couldn't relate. I kind of felt like, "Eh, that's cool, but all those Gilman bands would open for bigger bands and they would all play on the UC Berkeley campus." So I would just go to the campus and see shows. I never went to Gilman because I wasn't that extreme of a punk, I felt. Um but I'm trying to think who else was around. Um, the Beatniks had broken up, but I went to see like all of their offshoot projects. One of them was the Brown Fellinis. And then another was, um, which later became Disposable Heroes. And who else? The Yeasty Girls I used to see. Um, would they play? So they would play outside of the Gilman, the Yeasty Girls? Yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> this is such a cliche. I would go to all these protest parties. There would always be a fundraiser for somebody like going to South America or there's a fundraiser to get like a different Black Panther out of jail. Like literally all the protest shows had the best bands. That was my introduction to the live music scene there. So I saw them at one. Then I bought a compilation that they were on that the Beatniks were also on. Um then I would go to the Berkeley Square, and that's where I would see like Mr. Bungle, Primus, all those bands. Um, yeah, it was it was a pretty. And then across the bay, of course, we, in San Francisco, there's all these bands up and down the hate. So, pretty much Monday through Thursday, I would just go to shows. What Almost. Sorry, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just. It was the opposite of my New York life, where I was just going to see DJs there. I was like, oh, who's playing tonight? And we'd read about a band and go see them. <laughs> What was the hate street scene like? Was it all like revival type bands or is it a different? No, um, it was, there was like an industrial bands. Like I saw thrill kill cult really young on hate. Um, and then there's thrash funk bands would play there too. So like I actually first saw 24 seven spies at the I beam and I saw other bands open for them. And then the next night they're like, Oh, we're playing the Berkeley square the next night. And, we're like, we got to go because they came all the way from New York. So we went and it was like not so many people came because no one really knew who they were then. But we were so excited to see them two nights in a row. And um, I'm trying to think who else. Like, 
I mean, I guess later it became a little more revival-y, but I just remember seeing pretty much the same bands I would see in the East Bay or just bigger touring bands like Buffalo Tom or, you know, like Nirvana when they first started or um, what was that band from Texas? The Buck Pets. I was super into them. Um, and then later, like Four Non Blondes, but that's like way later. Um but in between all of that, I kind of got into the rave scene, too. So it was just like, there's a lot of different music happening there. I, it's really the thing I remember the most about living in the Bay was music. Like, I don't remember much about um, film or... I was, I was in school, but it's a blur. <laughs> I just remember going to a lot of shows. <laughs> the real education's going on. Exactly. Um, well, is it... Were there like different scenes? Like you mentioned how there's less people coming to that Berkeley show. Was there, was there like, you know, different groups of people that would be going to shows in, in San Francisco versus going to shows in Berkeley? Like were they kind of separate worlds? Um, the Berkeley scene is, is a bit smaller. Um, it's, it felt a little more, um, community based to me. Like I would always know most of the people at the shows, whereas San Francisco was more like bigger acts, more popular, um, not mainstream, but just more like of a national following. Um, whereas in Berkeley, like the bands that you liked would play, if not every week, at least a couple of times a month and it, at different venues all around between Berkeley and Oakland. So it's so wild to think about how many different like underground scenes are going on there, like from, you know, rap music to, to punk music to rave exactly. music to metal. Yeah. And then we also had the, the beauty of, um, you know, there were still warehouse parties and house parties where people could play. So we had this place called the Floppy House, and I think it had three floors, and you could see any kind of music there. It was great. It was like a weird rave Victorian house in West Oakland. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's like at the same time, you've got, you know, Lookout Records going, Too mm-hmm. Short going, and yep. uh, Neurosis going. All yeah. like separate all in the same like you know within a, a bart right away from each other and everyone knew all those things yeah it was it was kind of nuts um did you uh did you do any other projects when you were out in uh in the bay area no um i mean i would record with people sometimes but no one really um i can't say they didn't put anything i feel like i worked on a lot of things that didn't get finished which is kind of typical in music just because people are excited and, you know, they have home studios or maybe it's a hobby. Um, but yeah, I didn't really, uh, I mean, two of my friends from my raving days, we tried to have, <laughs> we really, really loved the happy Mondays. So we're like, let's make a band like the happy Mondays, but there are only three of us and only one of us played an instrument. <laughs> so then we found this guy to make beats for us. And then my friend, Tony, played bass and he was like co-producing and then me and my friend Cameron were the singers and I we have like a little four track and recorded two songs we're, like, we're gonna be like the happy Mondays it's great and I was like man there's not enough happening in the track <laughs> like our enthusiasm fizzled but um yeah I I started to feel like uh the kind of music that I wanted to make um there wasn't really a venue open to giving it a try <laughs> uh, because I didn't have a rock band behind me and I had like a drum machine and a guitar and a lot of effects and they didn't really understand where I was coming from 
as a black woman also, because I wasn't Tracy Chapman and I wasn't like a soul singer either. So I just started to feel like maybe I needed to see what was happening back here in New York to understand like my place musically. So um, I kind of made that my focus. I just went back to school and switched my major from art to music and took more lessons and just kind of focused on that kind of thing. And then, I don't know, I guess around that time, um, music became more DJ focused as well. So I don't know, like a big shift happened after the whole grunge thing was kind of like peaking as far as like going to shows and what people were doing. And my friends who were in bands, they were either touring nationally or they just weren't playing as much. So I just kind of felt like, I need to figure out where I'm supposed to be. And what was the scene like when you got back to New York? Oh, um, <laughs> well, I came here on the whim of a friend who said, you should come and check out what's happening now. And I realized, like, I don't know any musicians in New York. I was never a musician here. I was an art punk kid. I don't even know how to meet people playing music. So I started playing in the subway and I met so many people. Um, and then from there, I started to do open mics. And then from there, I started to see like, okay, this is a venue where I can play and here's where a band can be. And CBGBs was still open then. It was kind of in a weird limbo, but people still played. Um, but it was exciting. It was really exciting. And I felt like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and then like the East Village still had a lot of venues like all the stuff that's in Brooklyn, it was still in the East Village then. So it was definitely a cool time to be here. What kind of stuff would you play in the subways? Was it like your own music or were you doing covers or? Both. <laughs> it was like, I don't know. I, I, this is so funny to even say, but I had extreme stage fright when it came to playing in a well-lit room alone. I just couldn't do it. Like whenever I would take class and it was my time to sing, I would just drop out. And then like re-enroll and go back because <laughs> I didn't have the courage to even sing for the critique. So to play in the subway was really, uh, it was a big um, growth point for me to like overcome thinking about like people looking at me or reactions. So yeah, I did a lot of covers and then I would just throw in some originals because no one knew. Like, that's the thing you realize is no one really knows what you're playing. They just want to hear music. And I would play for like three to four hours a day, like five days a week. I treated it like my job pretty much. And I guess you get really good doing that. Like really, you know, like um, schooling like that. Yeah. I, I'm ashamed to say I wish I still had those chops. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was a really good exercise. Um and the thing about playing in the subway, too, is you're competing with the sound of the train, even though it's one to two platforms below you. And whatever you play has to carry acoustically, because this is before I had an amp. So I'm playing a still string hollow body guitar and with no mic. So I really had to, like, figure out songs that worked with the acoustics of the station. So that was a big lesson as well. <laughs> but... um. And then you start to realize which songs people react to. And there's a whole like routine to it. It's, it's definitely an interesting um, social study as far as people and emotions. 
and performance. Could you like, I know for Toronto to get like, you know, to be able to perform in the subways, there's like a huge audition process type thing. Was it the same in New York or did you just show up and, and set up your gear and play? Um, technically you're allowed to play acoustic outside of the paid area. Okay. If you want to play within the paid area, you do need a permit and they only have auditions once a year. You have to audition in Grand Central and, um, I think they only give out like 10 permits a year, maybe less. Mm-hmm. But um, when I went to audition, I didn't understand where in Grand Central they were going to place me. And that's another acoustic issue that I know now. <laughs> so where I auditioned, the sound was really dead. And I also, you know, like I show up, I don't have a mic, I have nothing. And I'm like, oh, there's no way I'm going to get this. Like, they can't even hear me. Like, I can barely hear myself. But it was a good, it was a good experience as far as um, seeing, you really get to see, like, the diversity of all the different performers in the city and what people do to busk. Um, But yeah, I never did it again after that, maybe because... um, I think at that point I had a job or I just started playing in bands and I didn't have time, but I actually really like playing this way a lot. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite things. Would you like pick a station or would you kind of travel around and kind of find out which station responds to your music more or. I had one station, um, but that station got remodeled before that it was, I was really lucky because it was literally in the heart of Soho it's at, um, I don't know if you know the neighborhood very well, but it's like Broadway and Houston Street. Like it's the exact center of where Soho starts. So it's a big shopping hub. And it's also very close to the East Village. Um, and the entrance where I would play had two ways to get downstairs. So it was almost like a big stage area that everyone had to walk past before they went down a long corridor to get to the entrance to go on to the train. The way it is now, uh, there's no room for anyone to perform outside of the paid area because it's full of machines and it's got a huge booth and it's all crazy. But um, I played at Grand Central once in the tunnel and the the acoustics were great. And also because it was full of tourists, uh, I made a lot of money really fast. But then I met one of my best friends like 30 minutes into playing and I was like, I think I need to stop playing now and talk to this person because I feel like we're going to know each other a long time. And literally, I made my first band with this guy, like my friend Monk, who's in this band called Bandroids. And um, I was like, you know, I made enough money today and this is cool. I'm down here to meet people. I'm going to just shut my case now and go. And I never went back to that station. Um, I think sometimes... I don't know. I think you pick a station and you stick to it because also you see the same people too. That's a big part of it. It becomes like a part of people's commute. I know when I see certain performers at certain, like at West Forth, there's this one guy who always does Beatles covers and I love him and I always give him all the money out of my wallet. (laughs) (laughs) And he's been there for years, like literally in the same tunnel. Um, I think it comes down to routine, frequency, and then acoustics. To me, acoustics and comfort are like number one because playing when it's really hot or when it's really cold is also kind of brutal. But um, yeah, if you have that one station and it's in your routine or in your, uh, I don't even want to say routine, it's just a part of your 
existence in a way. I literally just looked at playing down there like, okay, it's, it's rush hour. It's Tuesday. I got to go play in the subway for four hours. And then I, that would be it. Like, and in the end <laughs> I made flyers for the days when I would be there. Like once I wasn't there every day. So that was kind of fun. I made That's awesome. It's like, I guess it's like building a scene. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I guess like prepare, performing on the subway also kind of prepares you for like the, the most disinterested kind of crowd you could possibly have to face as you, as an artist. Uh, it's really interesting um, because you get used to people's reaction. Um, and uh, I think it toughens you up. At least it toughened me up a lot to the point of, I didn't feel so intimidated uh, speaking with people after performing in venues. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough crowd, but it's also an, the thing I love about the subway is it's all walks of life. So the people that you see getting off the train or going in might not necessarily come to the club. Like they might not even know like what a scene is or where it is. Um, so it's really cool that way. And also there's kids, there's literally every age of person, every background. Um, it was a really good exercise, most definitely. I've played like every conceivable kind of venue um, in in just being in a uh, you know being a musician or whatever broadly term musician, but that terrifies me. Like I don't think I could do it. Yeah, it's no joke. Um, there are some bands in New York who have been doing these kind of. Uh, what do you call it? Flash mob concerts in the subway. Um, there was this punk band. I can't remember their name. They're like friends of another band I'm friends with. Um, they <laughs> clearly went to guitar center and bought amps and everything and left all the labels on and were performing in the train with all the new gear. And I'm pretty sure they returned it all the next day. <laughs> and I'm like, that's extremely punk respect. Um, but they literally did a full concert with three bands. So I don't train. know how they, no, not on the train, but inside the station. Okay. Okay. And it was also inside the paid area. Like it was in the tunnel between like two different train lines. So I don't know if they got away with it because it was like a weekday in the middle of the day and not so crowded, but I love stuff like that. That's um, awesome. So I guess like also it's, uh, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with how different San Francisco was to New York. It's always fascinating to me geographically how, how places change different at different times and stuff. So like how different was the sort of like scene like in clubs in New York from when it was when you were there before going to the Bay? Um, Oh, wait, you're saying how different was the scene before I left? Well, I'm just uh, sorry. I, I, I was very convoluted. In my oh, yeah. I'm just <laughs> sorry. Like, wait a minute. <clears throat> but like how different was the New York you kind of returned to from the New York you had left a few years before? Oh, OK. So, again, I, I left New York as a visual artist, not really tapped into the live music scene, yeah. like more into the DJ kind of or like house party situation. When I got back um, – you know, it was the mid-90s, so we're at the height of grunge. We're at the height of the whole, like, poetry, open mic, coffee shop situation. Mm -hmm. So that's something I became acclimated with on the West Coast. And that culture had slowly trickled to the East Coast. So once I came back to the East Village, um, there were all these, like, small venues, like the Pink Pony and Max Fish and 
um, Meow Mix, which was kind of, it became famous um, from Chasing Amy. I don't know if you remember that film yeah. with Ben Affleck. Okay, so Meow Mix was like the girl-powered LGBTQ club, but to me, like one of the best rock venues on the Lower East Side. Um, so there are all these like small venues where they would kind of do acoustic music or heavy music, but the venues themselves were much smaller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the door charge would never be more than five or ten bucks. Um, In a way, a little more grassroots is a good way to describe the scene here. Also mixed with like the working class rock scene, like a place like the Continental or um, Brownies or uh, what else is over there? Um, Like the East, not East River Bar. Well, East River Bar is in Williamsburg, but like... um, Parkside Lounge or Lakeside Lounge or all mm-hmm. these places around Tompkins Square Park, like really small venues, but having live music like almost every night. Um, and the difference also, maybe not so obvious, is New York is a walking city and in the Bay you need a car. So that kind of limits where you'll also go. Um I lived in the East Bay, so I went everywhere by bike because I don't drive. <laughs> but, you know, once a week you have that friend with a car who's like, hey, let's go to the city and go to a show that's really far away. Whereas in New York, you have access to everything because you can walk, skateboard or hop on the train so that you're, the variety of venues that you'll go to is much broader. Mm-hmm. Like it's not so hard to get out of your neighborhood and everything's like transportation's 24 hours, venues stay open late. So it's just like a whole different vibe as far as maybe in the East Bay or in the Bay Area, you'd go see two bands, but here you go and there's like five or six bands on the bill because the clubs open early and stay late. So that was like a big difference for me as far as like going to see music and then also starting to play as as a newcomer. You don't get the good slots. You know, if you're lucky, you get to go on around nine or 10 o'clock, but nine times out of 10, you're going on after 2 a.m. <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> they've stacked the night so heavily to make sure that the sound person gets paid. You know, I God, I would not want to do sound for six bands, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So, you know, there's so many shows. Like I used to record everything off the board, like, Hey guys, thanks for staying. Cause I'm going on at like two thirty, three 3 a.m. on a Tuesday. So that was another big difference too. Just things happening later and, trying to get people to hang out later because it wasn't the only thing they could do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the main event. Those are the big differences that come to mind. That always hits me when I go, when I go to New York is just how much competition every event has. Like there's just Mm -hmm. always a million other things that are exactly targeted to the same audience. It feels like. Yeah. That's why, unless like, I feel really lucky, like with the 1865 and my other band backslider and then, I'm in like six bands, but like we all are friends with bands that we like. So if we all book shows together, we're guaranteed to get our community to show up. It's not like, oh, I wanted to come see you, but so-and-so was playing in Bushwick. (laughs) Like everyone knows to come and see everyone at the same time. So that's like the old school kind of live music vibe that's resurfacing. Thank God. Um, Because it is hard. Like so many times people invite me to things and I'm like, I really wish I could come see you, but my band is playing. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And especially like, as you're saying, like it does feel like kind of a throwback to like, like real scene building again. Mm hmm. Exactly. Um, Max Fish too. That becomes like a famous club a few years later, right? Like, um, you know, it wasn't known for live music in the original location. 
it was more of a hangout. It was like a skate punk hangout. Um, a lot of pro skaters work there and hang out. And then they had a pool table in the back. But they closed and reopened um, on Delancey. Not on Delancey. On, um, oh, wow. What street are they on? Orchard, I think. Like a few blocks away, basically. So now it's a split level venue and bands play in the basement and DJs are upstairs and downstairs. So now it really is more like a venue, not just a bar. Mm-hmm. I guess that's the other thing that was also kind of kicking off when you when you got back there is like that whole sort of kids supreme skate scene. Yeah, yeah. And like I dabbled in skateboarding. Um, So when I came back, I used to hang out in Washington Square a lot. I met like most everyone who was in kids right away. And then some of my friends from that crew were also DJs. Um, And then I worked in Soho. I actually worked next door to Stussy. So then when they opened Supreme, it was like Stussy Supreme. And I forget what the third shop was. But it was just a whole community of skaters who also DJed and had parties. So that was kind of another sub-scene of that, too. And I um, guess when you get back, what was sort of the first sort of musical? Were you mainly playing solo shows, or did you kind of hook up with a band right away? Oh, no. I never had a band in the beginning. Um, because I, when I, from playing in the subway, I started to meet some other musicians. And we just started doing acoustic either little acoustic shows or open mics. At one point, I remember I was doing open mics like four nights a week. And same thing, like I would make a little flyer and invite people and come. And um, then from the open mic scene, different bookers or organizers would go to those, I guess, to talent hunt. (laughs) So like, they're like, oh, I do a poetry night at such and such. You should come and play. So then that's how I started having my first shows before um, I really had a band for many years. I only played acoustic or just like electric with a drum machine. And then um, around the same time is when I started to hook up with different DJ crews and started making records. And that went on for like five years almost. I didn't have my first like real band until like 97, 98. So up until then I was playing solo pretty much as far as rock goes. So what was your first uh, band that you got together with? Um, It was with my friend Monk that I met playing in the subway. Um, And Micah, who he's also in this band, Apollo Heights and the Velt that I used to play with, Mm -hmm. but he was playing bass. Um, My friend Damali was playing drums and he used to be in Song of Seven, which was like a New York hardcore band in the early 90s. He also played with Mike Ladd. So those three guys were my backing band. And then it was just called Honey Child because... Back then, there was no other band called Honey Child, so I didn't start using my last name yet. (laughs) So um, we put together a band because I had met Tamar Kali, who's also an Afropunk, and she didn't know it, but I already knew Simi Stone. Mm -hmm. And then there was a fourth woman named Maya, who everybody else knew. And that's when we kind of formed the Sister Girl Collective, which was the Black Answer to the Riot Girls. Yeah. And we decided to have the first riot on Valentine's Day. So I was like, oh, we're going to do a riot. I need like a band behind me. I don't just want to have a drum machine. And I knew Monk because we had already started to write songs together. 
So um, he was working with Q-Max, who was one of the original singers of the Slackers. Okay, yeah. But Q-Max was on tour, so he's like, well, I have this free time because Banderoids is on hiatus. So, you know, I'll, like, get these guys together and teach them your songs. And then after that, we played together for a couple of years. So that was my first real band, was playing with those three guys. So going back to the Sister Girl Riot, how did that come together? Or how did you come together? Because... You know, it's become such a storied group, or you've become such a storied group. Sure. Um, I met Simmy Stone. She's a guitarist, violinist, songwriter, because she was roommates with this guy, Rich Salmon. And I met Rich from playing in the subway. So Rich and I would do these acoustic shows. Or Actually, we did concerts in the subway together. And one day he's like, oh, why don't you come to my house and jam out? So I went to his house. And we started playing and Simi heard us and literally just like grabbed her violin and ran downstairs and jumped (laughs) in. So that's how I met her. And then later we were in the same kind of DJ circles because she also sang and played violin with um, these different kind of DJ collective crews. The one she was in was called Organic Grooves. Um, This is so like nostalgic, I know. But um, there are these shops on the Lower East Side with young designers And the Organic Grooves crew, they had a record label, a record store, and they designed clothing. And then they also threw parties with, like, a DJ and different musicians, like, just a melange, like, percussionists, horns, singers. Like, I would sing with them sometimes, too, but Simi, like, became part of the crew and actually made records with them. So um, I met her, like, through a few different circles. And then Maya was friends with our other friend, Luke Mon, who's the leader of this band called Funk Face. And they were like a skate thrash band from the 80s. Um, they also did music for like a Tony Hawk video. And he's like a theater producer now. He does like music, theatrical production and all kinds of things. He has another side project called Dope Sagittarius. So they, um, when I met Luke, he was DJing and he was really good friends with Maya. And Tamar Kali knew Luke from the hardcore scene so I guess she met Maya through Luke and then came to tell me like, yo, I met this woman, Maya. She's incredible. Um, we gotta, we gotta do something like, let's do a show together. Like something he's like, she's like, you know, there's the riot girls, but we're in the East coast and we're, you know, we're New York and we're black and we got to bring our version. So then one night, um, She's like, well, I want you to meet Maya. Why don't you come with me to Brownies? And there's another sister I want you to meet. And she didn't know that I already knew Simi. So we go to the show and I'm like, I know Simi and I know her whole band because I know them from the electronic scene. (laughs) So it was like all these circles overlapping. Like at the time, this guy, Keen Adams, was playing um, drums with her, I believe. And I'm like, I know Akeen from like the gas station and Ilbian scene. So this is so bizarre that like all these circles are connected but it was really cool so that's how we like got together is that gas station that's the same gas station that Gigi allen played in that last concert in that absolutely oh my gosh so that had a yeah what was that that wasn't the scene from that concert i hope no um (laughs) the gas station you know i don't know who owned it but it was surrounded by this amazing like found scrap repurposed metal sculpture by this old school LES artist named Linus. So um, I remember like walking past it all the time when I was still at Parsons. But later, um, when I started going there, DJ Spooky lived there. And then once or twice a week, they had shows. So actually, one of the first shows I went to 
was a two-tone party with DJs that QMAX had organized. Oh, that's awesome. And I just remember him like peeking through the fence and he had some crazy like Scott checkered shirt on. And like he's the only person from that scene who um, he was in the two-tone scene and he was also in the drum and bass scene. Mm-hmm. So from there, um, let me think. Uh, yeah, there was always, there were art shows there. There were a lot of ambient parties. Sometimes they did daytime parties. It, um, it's so weird to me that it's gone. Like whenever I'm on Avenue B, I keep expecting to see it, but it's completely gone. It's like demolished and there's a high rise there now. It's so like you must've seen, like, I only started going to New York in like the 2000 era. Um, so, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like every time I go there, I'm like, wow, this place has changed. But like, I could only imagine living there throughout all these changes, like how, like you've several scenes have kind of been built over and rebuilt only to be built over again. Yeah, it's funny um, because it always feels like the scene lasts longer than it really did. (laughs) You're like, oh, that that whole like party that we used to have on Sundays was really only for a year or two years, but it feels like six because it was the the memories are just so vivid. But um, yeah, it's changed a lot. Definitely. Um, I guess uh, going back to uh, Sister Girl Riot, like when that came together, where were you putting on those those shows? Well, the first one was at Brownies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we were like, we were also overcome with how much love everyone showed our bands that we decided to start doing shows together all the time for a while. And I think the second riot was at this venue on 14th Street in the Meatpacking District. It was called The Cooler. Um, and it used to be like an old meat locker. It was a really cool, like tech looking place. Um, we did maybe two riots there. We did a couple of riots at CBGB's and then like the last regular riot was at CBGB's. I want to say in 2000. Okay. And then we didn't do any riots for a while because people kind of went separate ways. Like Maya moved to Texas and Simi moved to Chicago and was on tour and, I was in a band that was in Italy and we were just all kind of spread out. But um, the summer that CBGB's was closing, when James Spooner was still organizing the Afropunk festivals, he asked us to, he found out we, we were going to do our seven year anniversary. So he said, why don't you guys link it to Afropunk and I'll help you promote. So during Afropunk weekend and like the last uh, riot at CBGB's, I can't even tell you, it was like an afternoon party and so many people came. We couldn't even see like the street. It was so (laughs) insane. It was so packed. Um, We've been talking about doing like another one, but it's like literally kind of hard to get everyone together, but there seems to be some enthusiasm. We did a show. um, My band Backslider played the Punk Black Fest two years ago. And this really young woman came up And she was like almost crying. She's like, I can't believe you're here. I can't believe I'm seeing someone from the sister girls. And she held up her phone and her uh, wallpaper was a screenshot of our first flyer. And I looked at her and I was just like about to burst into tears. Like, how can you even know who we are? This is so amazing. I, I was like, I have to take a picture of this and send it to everyone. So they understand, like, we need to get back together. So yeah, that um, in between all of those shows, Maya and I probably played together the most because we she lived in the East Village then, and we were both really into Meow Mix. 
And also um, there was another venue called Coney Island High on St. Mark's. Um, and then we just had some other shows. Oh, we had another riot also at Webster Hall. I forgot about that one. So there's nothing kind of more amazing looking than I think a sold out CBGBs or a packed CBGBs. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's just like, I don't know, like, I don't think there's ever going to be a venue to kind of like, and I, I know this is nostalgia, but I didn't even get to go there at all. So to me, it's nostalgia from a real honest place, but, uh, oh my gosh, do I love looking at videos of a sold out CBGB show. Yeah. You know, it's out of all the places I've ever played of like a venue that scale, it had one of the best sound systems and amazing sound people. Um, I actually never went there until I played that first riot there. It was my first time like being in the venue for real, like, Oh wow, this is CBGBs. And, um, I played my first show. There was actually just me and the drummer of my band. I don't remember why everyone else wasn't with us for some reason. So it was also like an experimental thing way before white stripes, like, Oh, there's <laughs> guitar and drums and we're really loud. Um, but yeah, it's, I went there the last week that they were open and that was pretty intense as well. Just seeing like so many people come out that you hadn't seen in years and all these bands were playing and the whole staff was there and they were just so gracious to everyone who came in, like all the bands that came in, they just treated us really nicely. It was like a big last hurrah. I guess like how much recorded documentation of this scene is there? Cause like, I'd love to hear some of these bands, some of these recordings. Um, I'm pretty certain. I mean, unfortunately with my original band, we didn't do any studio recordings, but I recorded a lot of shows and I recorded a lot off of the board. One of the, my favorite sound people were, was, um, this guy, Luke, he did sound at the cooler and he was also the sound engineer for Sonic Youth. And so the recordings that he made of us are so sick. Yeah. Um, I have them all on cassette <laughs> and <laughs> thankfully um, my dear, dear friend Roz, who is Badawi, he's like a dub artist. I work with a lot. He also is the CEO of this um, music and kind of artist development school we have called the underground producers Alliance. He's helping me digitize a lot of those analog recordings. So I know uh, Simi has recorded at least three albums. Maya has one album recorded, and I have a copy of it. Tamar Kali has at least two, plus she's now an amazing award-winning film composer. So everyone's kind of still doing different things. But as far as recordings from back then, I think between the four of us, there's definitely some documentation I'll be so awesome to see that stuff get reissued or like just, uh, available online as you're saying, cause it is such a, you know, it's become a storied scene and it mm -hmm. just feels like it's really underrepresented in terms of recordings of it. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, but, sir, but who you mentioned briefly there was on roar, right? Yes. So yes. did you, what was it like being on roar? It's like, that's like gotta be one of the most storied record labels ever. Um, well, they are a family label, which is really cool. Like I read a little bit about Neil Cooper, um, who started Roar, and he just started the label out of the love for music. You know, he wasn't a music industry person per se. And, you know, his son kind of carried that legacy, Lucas. So in a way, I can't say it doesn't feel like a label, but it just feels very down home. 
But then every time I look at their catalog, I'm blown away. I'm like, oh, wow, Judy Nylon's in here and, you know, Bad Brains and the Beastie Boys first record and all these different things. So it was definitely a nice prestige to have that BR debut record. And that record still gets a lot of love. It's such an amazing label from like the dub stuff to the hardcore stuff to like the punk mm-hmm. stuff to like John Cale and stuff. Exactly. It's yeah. Like such a, it, you know, like it is like a true music lovers label. Mm-hmm. It's like going through someone's record collection. It feels like. Yeah, pretty much. It's great. Um, it's, I've um, talked to you for a, uh, forever. Would you come back and do a part two at some point in the future? Oh, I would love to. That would be great. But before I let you go, I just would love to chat to you briefly about 1865 and just how the ba- how it ca- all came together and just okay. recording that first LP, if that's cool. Um, sure, so of course. How did 1865 come together? Um, basically, the concept um, started with Sasha, who is like a history buff. Um, I don't want to say hobbyist. He really loves history. And in addition to being an amazing writer, journalist, filmmaker, um, making observations about what was happening with live music and politics inspired him to try to put something together. And he originally started just kind of jamming with Chuck Treese, the drummer and guitarist and pro skater. He's kind of well-known for being the first African-American on the cover of Thrasher. Also um, just McRad, like a, one of the best McRad, ex- And McRad, um, he plays, he's still very active in a lot of different projects. Um, so Chuck and Sasha were jamming together for about a month-ish. And years before that, Sasha and I had also tried to jam together a bit, but then we just both became very busy um, and didn't really finish those things. But um, we always kind of, I would run into him I literally a few times a year, like we would always run into each other on the same subway platform, (laughs) like going the opposite directions and be like, Hey, let's get together. So after jamming with Chuck for a bit, he thought of me. Um, Oh, I know what happened. I saw him. I ran into him at this bad brain secret show at the okay player art space where it was an art show featuring Daryl Jennifer's paintings and then the Bad Brains played and it was their first concert after both HR and Dr. No had had surgery so it was a huge like in the know like oh Bad Brains are playing but not that many people know about it blah blah blah. so we get there of course it's super packed and I literally saw him in the middle of people crowd surfing across like 10 or 20 people so then about a month later my friend Shannon from Activator was like, hey, Sasha's trying to find you, blah, blah, blah. So we started talking. He told me about the project. And he had me at Lo-Fi, why is there no black version of people doing this music? We created, you know, akin to what Black Keys and White Stripes are doing. And I'm like, you got me at Lo-Fi and blues punk. And also there's some history involved. I'm like, okay, just send me the tracks. I want to hear what this is. And we just kind of started talking about the concept right away and then writing. And in about five weeks, we had about eight songs written. So were the lyrics kind of already coming at the exact same time the music's coming or how much was it was brought beforehand? You? <laughs> um, when he sent me the tracks, he had about a page and a half of different lyric ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, none married to any specific riff, but, uh, we kind of talked about the overall theme and then I just ran with it. 
and literally like hit the history books a bit just to give some authenticity to the characters. And um, I would, I have a few different ways that I write depending on my, what my input is musically. Like if the music is complete or like three quarters complete, I'll often sing with a recording and then transcribe or I'll write while I'm listening and transcribe. So I kind of did a combination of the two and I would just send him these rough recordings um, like, oh, do you think this melody works or what do you guys think of this? And then like after that, I would just like fully flesh it out. So it happened pretty quickly, I feel like, based on how little time we had to practice <laughs> before our first show. <laughs> I mean, when I look back, I'm like, did we really write an album in five weeks and play a huge festival? <laughs> like, that's incredible. But we were so inspired and it was really exciting to see it come into fruition and see the potential that the songs had to live and then think of other songs after that. I think we ended up adding maybe three or four songs after those initial eight. Well, it's wild to think about how like, you know, heavy of a record it is in terms of like lyrical depth and what's going on and that it all came together in five weeks because it feels like a much, yeah, I guess we had a lot to say and, uh, as someone who's in five or six bands, I feel like whenever someone's like, how can you be in so many bands? I always feel like you have things to say, but they don't fit each project. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to have a place to put those feelings and those themes that made sense. It doesn't feel heavy handed. Um, and to have it not just be me, you know, it's not the Honey Child project. It's 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 such a concept, and the concept is so strong. Um, it was really. E I don't want to say it was easy. I'll say it was inspiring, and it flowed. And mm -hmm. to me, those are like good signs that we're in the space where we need to be to like say what we need to say artistically. Um, but yeah, I still can't believe, honestly, like it's a chemistry thing. Like sometimes you have a band and you have a great time together and you could be good friends and have no chemistry as far as output goes. And that's cool. Like maybe it's a band that you play in just for fun or, or maybe it's, it can't be a thing where you're trying too hard. And I'd never felt like I was trying too hard on any of the music that we worked on and that we're still working on. It's been really great. Yeah. It's such an amazing group because like you can hear all of your contributions to it. Like you can hear, you know, Chuck's stuff, you can hear Sasha's stuff and you can hear your voice and, and your, your guitar stuff. You can hear all everyone's present throughout the project. Like I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't for Sasha. Like, Oh wow. Just like growing up with ego trip, like that really informed my approach to, to music. The way I look at music was completely from <laughs> ego trip books and, and magazine oh, that's great. And stuff. So yeah, no, it still feels like I'm learning from now the whole band, obviously all these years later. Yeah. It's, um, I'm really, uh, I mean, we have a different lineup now, uh, because Chuck no longer is playing with us and we have a different drummer. It's biz from dragons of Zenth. And who I just know from like the whole Williamsburg scene because I'm friends with all his bandmates and also with Dave from TV on the radio. And then we have Flora from New York hardcore band Maafa. And she brings a lot to the table as well. Like vocally, we can do these sick harmonies. She's an amazing bassist. She's so learned. 
she's really good with like, I'm completely self-taught. So, you know, people shout out charts at me all day long and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm really just listening, (laughs) but she can break it down, um, and help us all like really stay locked in. Um, but the most important thing on top of us all being on the same agenda is we have fun together and it's something, I think sometimes it's hard to have fun when the music is so serious because it can be a bit of a downer, Mm -hmm. but this group is very balanced that way. And I really love it. I look forward to every rehearsal, every show, like any opportunity where we're all in the same room to talk is like pure gold. So I'm really psyched to get in the studio with those two because we've already got like a whole new and exciting chemistry happening with the new songs. Um, so yeah, it's, it's growing, it's progressing is the only way I can put it. Well, are you, are you, is it still the same approach to songwriting this time around? Or are you at that stage now where you're looking at lyrics? Um, I've pretty much still been the main lyricist. Um, Sasha is a genius at themes. He'll just be like, Oh, let's write a song about, um, I will use runaway bride as a great example. He just wrote me like an email one weekend, like, Hey, what if we write a song where the slave master thinks he's, you know, he's kind of a liberal guy and he's, he thinks he's like nice. He thinks he's like a good guy. And (laughs) I, I mean, he didn't get too in depth with it, but just the idea that like, it's the point of view, like what is the story with what happens when, you know, your master thinks they're not so bad. So I just kind of took it a bit further, maybe way too far, but um, I decided that the slave master's son was in love with the runaway bride Mm -hmm. to the point that, and because he's open-minded and liberal and whatever, he's going to give her her freedom. So that became the whole song. And every time, like he gives me a theme, I kind of, I don't want to say I take it to the next level, but I really run with it just to see like, well, how far can the story go? How many layers can there be? How much can we bring the listener into the fold of all the different characters? Because it's, we have those worn out tropes that everyone's really tired of. That's why people say, I don't want to see another slave movie. I'm tired about things about race. Like it's so complex. America is such a complex country. And especially now, like it's exciting to make the stories go deeper than the surface. Um, but yeah, he's, he's really, I think Sasha is one of those people who's just constantly brainstorming. And I love that he's constantly throwing ideas at me. Um, and then, or we just have this exchange and then we build the songs off of it and see what happens. Well, I can't wait to hear the new stuff. I'm really like, as I say, <laughs> I, you're, you're like, don't tread on. We was one of my favorite records that I've heard in Thanks. a long time. And it's like, there's just so much, I don't know to get into, like you're saying, it's like a lot, a lot of layers to these songs, a lot of layers to the characters that you're writing and developing in these songs. And, and the music too is, is, you know, trippy for lack of a better word. And like something you kind of get, kind of, you know, get into. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, I, I can't say that, um, you know, as we were recording, it's not that we doubted what we were doing, but we were definitely curious about how people would react. Like, is it going to be too heavy? Will people think it's too dark? And the feedback's been really nice and very positive and, and very uplifting, to be honest. A lot of people have said, you know what, I really needed to hear this. 
And the way that I feel when we play is I needed to let it out. So it's nice to have that exchange with the audience and with the listener. Well, honey child, anytime you want to come back on this podcast and let it out, you're more than welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been really awesome talking to you. And, um, you know, I listen to your shows a lot, so it's an honor to be a guest. Thank you, honey child, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, honey child, we'll be back for a part two at some point in the future. And I, I cannot wait for that because <laughs> a lot more to discuss. Like listening back, I'm like, oh, I should have asked about this. But that, that's what part twos are for, you know, covering all the stuff you've got to cover in part one. And speaking of part ones, later on this week, there will be a part one with someone who I've wanted to have on the show for, for years and years. Someone I've been a massive fan of. For many things that they've been involved with. Also, a member of the fantastic The 1865. Sasha Jenkins will be joining me on the show, and we will be discussing everything from roadieing for Burn to writing Eminem's autobiography with them. It is a wide ranging conversation. You know, stories about Nas, stories about it's it's awesome. This is a a really fun show. Ah, I love this week. Please go out and check out the 1865 Don't Tread on We. It's on Mass Appeal Records. Um, and uh, yeah, go and, go and find it now. It's also on all the streaming services. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It's a fantastic, fantastic record. Well, that's it for me this week. As always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. Please, right now, it is imperative that you go out and get involved, get informed, show up, uh, donate money if you can to organizations, to bail reliefs, because it, it's important, you know, pay attention. It's, it's kind of fallen out of the headlines, but we are, as I say, you know, and as, as I'm sure most of you know, probably many of you better than myself, we are at a really pivotal time, um, in, in human history where things feel like they could change and things feel like they could also get a lot worse. So, uh, please get involved as much as you can. Uh, also, sign your organ donor cards. Um, definitely go out there and try and create your own culture. Um, make make creative things. Put yourself out there. Uh, experience. I don't know. Just just try and uh, you know keep yourself grounded and and uh, sane as much as possible right now too. Um, and uh, that's it. I think that's all I got to say. Uh, wear a mask. Definitely, please wear a mask. Um, And that's it. I love you, and I will see you later on this week on the show. Thank you for listening.